There's so much we can learn about ourselves when we think about trees. Did you know that in Psalm 1, God says you shall be like a tree? When we follow Jesus, it begins when we are like a tiny seed or a sapling, firmly planted and too weak to stand on its own. As we grow up in the truth, we send our roots down. They keep us fed and strong. But beware, becoming what God created us to be isn't always easy. There are bad forces that work against us, and it takes faith and discipline to get through them. But once you mature and discover your gifts, you grow fruit. Delicious fruit that you can share with everyone around you. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching how your life, which started out as a little seed, can multiply into the lives of others. This could be you, a majestic tree, going deep, growing wide, living tall, and bearing lots and lots of fruit. Well, good morning. My name's Dave, one of the pastors here. We're in the middle of a sermon series. I should say we're coming to the end of a sermon series uh, called Cultivating the Christian Life. And we've been talking about this final phase of cultivation, the phase of multiplying. And throughout this series, we've been using this imagery of a tree because what we've said is that the tree is God's ultimate object lesson for what he wants us, his people, to be like. And what we've been saying in this phase is that God wants us to be fruitful and to multiply. And so banana trees produce bananas and apple trees produce apples and pear trees produce pears. And eventually a tree is designed to reproduce itself. And I don't know about you, but I'm always amazed at the sovereignty of God and his creativity as how he intended for this to happen. As a child, we had this maple tree. And this maple tree would, would drop these kinds of seeds. We call them helicopters or whirlywigs. How many of you used to play with these seeds when you were little? You put them on your nose, you twirl them around. Isn't our God so sovereign and creative the way in which he designed uh, these seeds just to float away and plant another maple tree wherever they might land? Our God is just, um, his design in nature is just unbelievable how this one seed can travel a great distance and reach fertile ground and eventually become a tree itself. Friends, that's a picture. That's a picture of what God wants from us, his people. That's a picture of ourselves and our own call to be fruitful and to multiply. This is the command of God from Genesis to Revelation that he wants us, his people, to be fruitful and to multiply. This is our great calling. This is the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations, to expand the borders of God's kingdom and pass along the greatest news in all of the world. And this is a great privilege to share the gift of the gospel with those who may not even know what they're missing. However, it also brings with it some great challenges, doesn't it? Uh, if you're like me, when you begin to share this good news with those around you, you can begin to run into some problems, all kinds of problems, actually. Uh, sometimes I'm talking to people about spiritual things, and the moment I step towards a spiritual subject, they step away from that spiritual subject. Now, other people, when I'm trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, they, they stop me after about five minutes into the conversation, and they say, now, wait a minute. Uh, if you're talking about Christianity, my neighbor's a Christian. The only time he lives like it is two hours on a Sunday morning. If that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Or other times, you're trying to share the good news about Christ, and if you're like me, uh, you get into a situation where they're trying to debate with you, and it becomes pretty clear right off the bat that they're trying to make me uh, look like an idiot. 
And so what I do sometimes in those moments is uh, as they try to make a fool out of me, I begin to try to make a fool out of them. As they try to show me that their mind is sharp and that their tongue is sharp, I show them that my mind is sharp too and my tongue is even sharper as well. And after uh, some time in this conversation, I realize I haven't really had a spiritual discussion about Jesus. I've had a full-fledged argument that requires some apologies. And we have experience like, experiences like that and it's only a matter of time till you and I uh, throw up our hands in the air out of desperation and disgust and say, how in the world are we supposed to multiply? How in the world are we supposed to make an impact uh, and share the gospel with those around us? This is a very challenging topic, and so this is where we're headed today. That's what our topic is about. If you have your workbook, turn to page 167. If you don't have one, we have some available in the Welcome Center. Please take one. Uh, They are there for you to take. We've made it to rule number 12 uh, in the Spiritual Formation Series. Rule number 12 is simply share the gospel. It's this world's only hope. Share the gospel. It's this world's only hope. And for our uh, passage, I want to look at a very famous text found in Acts chapter 17. It's a record of the Apostle Paul and his well-known speech at the Areopagus in Greece. And I've simply entitled the message, Made to Multiply. Made to Multiply. In this text, in Acts 17, you will find seven strategic principles of multiplication that we can think about as we share the gospel with others around us. Seven helicopter seeds, if you will, that you can use as strategies to share your own faith, a multi-pronged, seven-part strategy, and we will build it one step at a time. So if you have your workbook and you're artistic, draw this uh, leaf there with seven uh, uh, leaves coming off of it, and that'll be our outline for today. So those of you who are uh, creative, you can have some fun doing a little drawing in your workbook as you draw this little seven-pronged leaf thing on the screen. Now, as we look at this, one more thing. Please personalize this message today for you. Uh, Please think about that one person in your family, that one person in your life, that one friend of yours at work that you're burdened for, that you know is not a Christian, but you long for an opportunity to share the good news with them. Who's that one person? Who's that one person that God has bringing to mind right now? What's that face? What's that name that comes to mind? Please think of them as we look at this passage. When you personalize it, it becomes much more meaningful in that way. So personalize the message for you as we think about how to share the greatest news in all of the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to do today. Uh, Before we do that, let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, you tell us in your word that uh, the, the harvest is plentiful. Uh, but the workers are few. Lord Jesus, you lifted up your eyes and you saw the fields and you saw that they were white and ripe for the harvest. Uh, But yet you also said that we're to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he might raise up more laborers to work in your field. So would uh, would you do that today? Would you teach us to be laborers in your field? We would invite ourselves to be the answers to that prayer today. Would you use us in some way by what we say or by what we do uh, to share our faith, for we do indeed want to be fruitful and we want to multiply. And we ask this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. And everyone said... Amen. As you turn to Acts chapter 17, just a little context because we're diving in the middle of a book. You don't read a book that way. So let me just share with you what's going on here. There's a guy named Paul. He accepted Jesus as his savior in Acts 9. The Lord knocked him off of his horse, really, and he became a missionary for Jesus. He was the most successful missionary probably of all time, planted churches all around the Mediterranean rim. And uh, he went down to Athens, Greece in Acts chapter 19 
uh, to share the message with uh, people that were living there, listeners there. This is one of the most brilliant and well-known speeches in the whole world and well-known passages in the Bible. In those days, Athens was the intellectual capital of the world. This uh, this would be equivalent to all the Ivy League schools combined back then, Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Princeton. Uh, This was the epicenter of their intellectual culture, Athens, Greece. And so Paul goes there as a missionary. He goes there to do ministry work, and uh, he gives one of the most persuasive arguments for God that we have in the whole Bible to this group of ivory tower philosophers who gather to listen to this man. Uh, But today I want you to look carefully at not just what he said, but how he said it, as it will provide for us insight and lessons for ourselves as we think about sharing our faith with unbelievers uh, with skill. So we pick up with that context, we'll pick it up in Acts 17, starting with verse 16. If you're ready, say amen. Amen. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, uh, his friends, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul's in Athens, and he sees here in the city of Athens rampant paganism, rampant idolatry. And Paul's response to this is he was greatly distressed. Your text might say he was provoked because of all of the idols. The word for greatly distressed there means that he was emotionally angry and that he was repulsed as he looked around and saw all of the idols in Athens, Greece. Uh, That word is actually most used in the Bible to describe God's response to his people who fall into idolatry time and time again uh, in the Old Testament. Isaiah 65, verse 3, Hosea 8, 5. God is greatly distressed when he sees idolatry. In Athens, there were all of these statues to all of these different Greek gods. They had Artemis, the goddess of prosperity. If you wanted to be prosperous, you'd go offer your sacrifice to that god. They had uh, Athena, the goddess of politics. If you wanted to have wisdom to lead, uh, then you would go uh, offer a sacrifice there. If if you uh, worshipped the god Nike, Uh, the the goddess of victory worshipped by Michael Jordan and the athletics of the first century, then you would go offer your uh, sacrifice to the goddess Nike. If you wanted to worship Aphrodite, the goddess of sexuality, beauty, and fertility, and you wanted to be fruitful and have children, you would go offer your sacrifice there. They had gods for everything. Cloacina was the goddess of the sewer system. I don't know what in the world you would do there. I'm not sure what a sacrifice to that god would look like. I don't really want to know. But in all seriousness, uh, this city was full of idols. And in Athens, it was said it is easier to meet a god there than another person. They had idols for everything. What this tells us, back then and today, is that mankind is incurably religious. Mankind is incurably religious. Everybody worships. The question is not do your friends and family worship. The question is what are they worshiping and is what they're worshiping worthy of worship? That's the question. Now we think of these statues and idols as so antiquated. But if you look around at the statues that they uh, celebrate in any culture, uh, you can see what are the idols of that particular culture. Anything that the culture lifts up and brazens into a statue, that's a dead giveaway that that's something that that culture idolizes. People sacrifice for those idols. Uh, People find their happiness in those idols. People uh, find all of their satisfaction in those idols. And anything, the Bible says, anything that becomes more important than God is an idol. Even a good thing, if that good thing becomes more important than God, then that is an idol. And so Paul looks around and sees the idols of his day, and it says he is greatly 
distressed. He is provoked. Uh, the idea, again, behind that word is that he is emotionally disturbed. Uh, let me put it on the screen for you again just so that you can see it. To be greatly distressed was most often used in a marriage situation when a husband would find his wife committing adultery and caught, being caught in the act. Uh, he was greatly distressed by that. That is the feeling behind this word. That's the way God feels when we lift up anything else to replace him. And so Paul sees all this worship and honor and glory going to these idols, but none going to the Lord Jesus Christ who came and died for us and gave his life for us, and he is greatly distressed. He is provoked in his spirit. So here's the question I think for you and me right off the bat. Maybe part of the reason why we're not really sharing the gospel is we're not really greatly distressed. Maybe the prayer that we need to pray right off the bat is, God, would you provoke me? for the things that provoke you. Maybe the prayer that we need to pray right here in the beginning is, can I be greatly distressed, Lord, with the things that greatly distress you? When I look around and I see all of the idols around me, I don't know, Lord, I think I might become numb to these things around me. I don't even notice them anymore. Lord, would you, again, give me your eyes and your heart to see how you feel about people rejecting uh, the spring of living water and digging out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that don't hold any water. This is Paul's feeling. He's provoked. So what happens there? It says in verse 17, so he goes in and he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So he enters the synagogue and begins to minister there in the Jewish context. That was his custom. But notice, he goes somewhere else too. Did you see it? He goes to the marketplace. Now, when you and I see the word marketplace, we think shopping. That's not what they thought. The word marketplace was the Greek word agora, and this was the cultural center of the world. This was Times Square. This was philosophically, socially, and financially. This is where you would go. This is where you get your news. This is the media center. This is where they would have their art performed uh, at the agora. This is also where all of the latest philosophical trends were being debated. This is where Paul brings the gospel, to the center of the known world. And so the first strategy, I think, is kind of obvious from these first couple of verses, probably goes without saying. This might be a little insulting to you. I apologize if it is. I don't mean it to be, but here's the first strategy if we want to learn to multiply. We need to make social contact with those who don't believe in Jesus. Make social contact with people outside of the Christian faith. Some of us come from a church background where we're kind of told that it's better if you keep a safe distance from non-Christians altogether. Now, I know there's value in Christian fellowship, and that is good, but let me just point out that Paul and Jesus himself did the exact opposite, that they lived and ate among and socialized among those that they wanted to reach. And so here's the question. Have you structured your life in such a way that you don't interact with people that you don't agree with, that you're in a complete echo chamber? If so, that's not good. We can't say, oh, I don't like those people, so I don't want to be around them. That's not what Paul did. If we do that, we actually quarantine the gospel. And if we're not careful, we're not intentional about this first step, we will isolate ourselves from the very people we are trying to reach. Uh, what's interesting nowadays is there's such a, uh, an emphasis on sticking uh, with with within our circles that you can even find things like Christian yellow pages. And uh, you can, like, heaven forbid you'd ever have to talk to a non-believer about your plumbing problems. What's wrong about all of that is sometimes we can cut ourselves off from people that we're designed to reach with the gospel, and we can hide 
like a Benedictine monk in a monastery. Well, that, that would be, that's not very productive. That would be like a basketball team who stays in the huddle the whole time. Well, you're not going to score many baskets that way if you stay on the bench in the huddle the whole time. Get back out on the court and play the game. And so this is what Paul does. Now, for some of you, that's not hard at all. Like you go to school or you work in a place where there's like unbelievers that you interact with every day. Not hard for you. Others of you, though, this might have to be something where you think about, how can I be more intentional and how can I restructure my life in such a way that I rub shoulders more with people who don't think like me and who don't necessarily believe in Jesus? Let me challenge you to think creatively about how you can make social contact. Certainly, Paul makes an effort to do so. Going back to the scriptures, this is where he goes, off to the Agora. What's he doing there? It says he's reasoning in the synagogue. Uh, the word reasoning there is dialogues. It's the Greek word where we get our English word dialogue from. It's, it's used to describe a kind of Socratic method where uh, you would debate and you listen to your opponent uh, and figure out their premises and um, their foundations and ask questions and then show them how they've erred based on their own premises. And every culture uh, has a soft underbelly like this. And so this is what Paul does. He goes to the center of the culture and he challenges the most dominant ideas in that culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amazing. And here's some detail about what was going on there in verse 18. It says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So there's two groups here. Um, they would debate each other endlessly. They are the Stoics and the Epicureans. You don't need to worry about what they believed or who they were. That's not really important to you. Uh, but if you're interested, the Stoics, they believed that you had to live your life with high integrity, high honor. Uh, you had to be good. You had to do the right thing. You had to be noble. So if you're a Stoic, no matter what came your way, you can't let that bother you. You got to be tough. You got to put aside your desires, white knuckle it, and just have a stiff upper lip. These were incredibly strong people. Epicureans, exactly the opposite. They believe when you died, that was it. Worms eat your body. You only get to live once. YOLO. And uh, they said, eat, drink, be merry. We, we're you know, we going to live for pleasure. These people were very uh, sexually promiscuous. They believed in uh, hedonism, and um, they, they certainly didn't restrain themselves in terms of their own uh, licentious desires. And so uh, here's these two groups. Now, what's most important about these two groups is not what they believe. You don't need to know that. What you need to know is you see here that Paul knew what they believed. Paul was able to engage and interact with the leading thinkers of his day. And so he's debating. The word debate there means to go back and forth. It's not a contentious thing. It's just a question and answer kind of thing. And Paul is able to do that. He's not intimidated by them whatsoever. And here's why. Here's why. Paul believes that the gospel has what it takes to take on the most dominant ideas of any culture. That's what Paul believed. Do you believe that? Paul believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ could take on any worldview and could take on the dominant ideas in any culture. That's what we have to believe. If we're going to have to have courage and boldness, then we've got to believe that too. We've got to be like Paul and say, wait a minute, this is my story. This is my song. The Lord Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, died, buried, was raised from the dead. He's Lord of all, and he commands us to share the good news. We have to believe that our worldview has what it takes to take on the ideas of any culture, even ours. We have to know that because there's power in the gospel. And to be able to do that skillfully, this leads us to the next step. We have to be able to do our homework. Do your homework. Have you done that? 
Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? And do you know your audience and what they believe and why they believe it? Or can you interact with someone who's different than you in a skillful way? Paul certainly did. Paul knows their worldview so well, you'll see later in the passage, he quotes their own philosophers back to them. And they go, wow, Paul knows our story. He's quoting our songs. He's quoting our musicians. He's quoting Bono from U2 back to us. He knows exactly what we're doing. He knows what we're all about. You gotta show that you care enough about those that you're trying to talk to that you've understood and that you've learned what they think too. And then they'll begin to listen to you. But some of us don't wanna do this. You know why? Because it takes work. And we tend to resist things that take work. But this is what God calls us to do. So if you really care, won't you take the time to learn their language, their culture, their worldview? Listen, if you really love somebody, won't you figure out how to communicate something important to them? For example, I don't know sign language because it's hard to learn and because no one close to me in my family is deaf. But I guarantee you, if one of my kids was deaf, then I would take the time to learn sign language because I would do anything I needed to do to be able to communicate with someone that I cared about. See, just like that, if we care about those that we are trying to reach, then we will take the time to do our homework and understand how to communicate with them. Absolutely, we will do that. So we need to do our homework. Uh, Pastor Bob recommended a book last week that I just want to throw out there again for you to check out as a resource. Uh, It was called Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane, and he shared the four uh, tenets of a secular worldview. Do you remember when he shared this? I thought it was so good, it was worth repeating. It's just so clear and so concise. I just really love the way she puts this in her book, Feelings Being the Ultimate Guide. Number two, happiness is the ultimate goal. This is where we live. Judging is the ultimate sin, and God is the ultimate guess. Do you understand that about the secular worldview in which we're engaging with today? Do you understand that this is where we're coming from? If so, then you have to be able to not only articulate this, but you have to be able to skillfully articulate the contrasting view from a Christian perspective. First, would we say feelings are the ultimate guide? No, we would say actually the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Feelings can actually lead you astray. We actually think God and his word are the ultimate guide. Second, would we say happiness is the ultimate goal? Not necessarily. Uh, People get happy doing some pretty atrocious things. We would say that glorifying God, knowing God, and making him known is the ultimate goal. Third, judging is the ultimate sin. Well, if we think about it, I think there's some behaviors that we might say are worth judging. And we wouldn't say that judging is the ultimate sin. There's a wrong kind of judging. We understand that. But we would say actually rejecting Jesus is the ultimate sin. Fourth, God is the ultimate guess? No. God is the infinite creator and redeemer. He's revealed himself to us in his creation and in his word and in his son, and he's perfect in holiness and love and justice, and he's a firm foundation on which we stand, to which extensive and sufficient evidence points. So we have to be able to skillfully interact with people who have a different worldview, and when you do this, do so gently and respectfully. This is the warning in 1 Peter 3. Remember what Peter says? Always be prepared to make a defense, that's an apologetic, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Now notice it says that we're given a warning. And the reason is because when we present the Christian worldview, it's threatening to the foundation of their entire worldview. 
God has given you a powerful weapon in the gospel and in the Christian worldview, and we have to defend our faith with gentleness. This is why it comes with a warning. When you go to the store and buy a Nerf gun, there's not that many warnings on it because Nerf guns are not that dangerous. I know there's some exceptions to that, but you get the, the point. But if you go buy a real gun, there's tons of warnings on that thing. You gotta buy a, get a license, you gotta get all kinds of permissions. There's a lot of warnings about the danger of that. When you, fair, when you defend your faith properly, when you critique an unbeliever's worldview, they're flying in an airplane and you're aiming a gun at their airplane and you're blowing holes in their entire worldview and that, that plane is going down. And, and if you don't do this with gentleness and respect, they will not cruise over to the runway of Christianity. They will ditch in Lake Hindu or they will go over here and ditch in Lake Buddhism instead. And so when you share your faith, I always say, don't be a jerk about it. You gotta be, do, do this with gentleness and respect so that people, when they talk to you, they wanna know more about the Lord Jesus after talking to you, not less about the Lord Jesus after talking to you. Take special note of this command when you engage on social media. Uh, the greatest evangelist I've ever met, Larry Moyer, said, Dave, cultivate the gift of wholesome conversation so that when you engage people about Christ, they wanna know more about the Lord after they talk to you, not less. That's a good word. Paul did this well. He knows his stuff. He knows what he's up against. In fact, he knows it so well, after he reasons with them, they invite him to share more. Take a look with me at verse 19, if you will. It says, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds like some social media channels that I've been on lately. Okay, so back then, this was Athens, and the philosophers would gather in this place and discuss ideas, debate, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The name Areopagus uh, just means the hill of Ares, or sometimes it's called Mars Hill, because Ares was the Greek god of war, and the Roman equivalent to that god was the god Mars. And supposedly, in Greek mythology, this was the hill, this was the place where Ares, or Mars, was put on trial for murdering Poseidon's son. That was the mythology, but despite that mythology, this was a real place in Athens. You can go visit there today, and you can stand right where Paul stood and right where he preached this message. And remember, there they had all these idols, so here's Paul. He's invited to give this address. Paul goes up there. Here's what it says in verse 22. Amazing. Look at this. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very, what's the word? Religious. A very purposefully chosen word. The word is neutral. You can't necessarily discern if he's talking about it in a negative way or a positive way. You always have to look at the context to determine how this word is being used. And I think Paul was ambiguous here on purpose for that reason. You're very, what's the word? Religious. What's he doing? Why does he say it like that? The reason, I think, is because he's finding common ground. And that's the next principle in sharing the gospel. If you want to engage unbelievers with the good news of Jesus, you must find some common ground. Are you able to do that? Are you able to build a bridge from where you are to where they are by finding common ground with that person? Can you find something positive that you can say about your friend or family member, even if you disagree with them about the most important things in your life? Can you find something about them that's common? Can you say, you know, I get, bro, that you really, you really long for something more in life. I appreciate that. Or can you say, 
you know, I really liked how you have such compassion and love for the hurting. Me too. Can you say, I, I admire your passion for truth. Can you say, I, I, you know, I really think that you want to make a difference in this world, and, you know, I do too, and I, can, I appreciate that about you. Can you find some kind of common ground? It's difficult to do this. Sometimes there's a disconnect. Sometimes we can't find anything to think about that's common ground. How many of you, if you're under 20 years old in the room right now, you have any idea what this picture is on the screen? <laughs> this right here, people used to buy things here. People used to rent things here called VHS tapes. They would go here to rent movies. You had to go somewhere to rent a movie. And in the 1990s, this isn't that long ago, in the 1990s, teenagers these stores were as common as Starbucks. They were everywhere. People would go there. You had to rewind your videotape after you were done and return it, or there would be late fees. It was like the library. I know it's hard to believe, but there is a disconnect between what one generation sees as important and necessary and sometimes what the next generation sees as completely irrelevant, unimportant, and unnecessary. Spiritually speaking, the same thing can happen in ways that we share the gospel. It's very possible, friends, listen, it is very possible that if you're in an older generation, you're communicating the gospel in such a way that entirely misses the ability to reach the next generation. Be careful about that. Find common ground. Page 172 in your workbook goes into depth about this. There's a principle called contextualization, and we're going to dive more into that in our small groups together, and you'll, you'll learn about under-contextualization and over-contextualization and how to find common ground like Paul did, saying, to the Jew I became like a Jew, to the, you know, and so forth, Be taking on the mindset of those that you're speaking with and finding common ground. So we'll talk about that uh, later in your workbook studies if you're a part of that. Let's go on to where we find Paul in Acts 17, picking it up in verse 23, where he goes on to say this. Paul says, for as I walked around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, isn't that something? They had all these statues there representing all these different gods, Zeus and Poseidon and Athena and all of the rest, all these deities that they worshiped. And then in case they forgot something, they had built this statue to an unknown God. Now, I think they built this thing like just in case. You know, like, just in case. In case this God showed up, and they're like, oh, hey, it's you. We've been expecting you. We have your statue right here. We just, what is your name? We just didn't know the name that we had to put on your statue here. And so they built this thing kind of like superstitiously, like, just in case. Maybe we missed one. People are superstitious. People are superstitious back then. They are superstitious today, too, aren't they? Sometimes you hear about people wanting to sell their home and they say, I'm just gonna bury a statue of St. Joseph in the yard. Somebody told me if I do that, then you know, just in case this might work for my, you're gonna do what now? I lost my keys. Uh, this one lady, she was talking to me. She said, I lost my keys and whenever I lose my keys, I gotta pray to St. Uh, Anthony, I think it is. You pray to, is that right, St. Anthony? All right, thank you guys. Um, and she goes, yeah, you just say this. Tony, Tony, if you're around, there are keys to be found. I'm like, Really? You do that? <laughs> some people, when they get a new car, they throw loose change in the back seat for some kind of, I don't know, is it good luck? Or what? I don't know what that is. People are superstitious. 
They, they are today. They, they, they were back then. Some people, they'll come to church just like on Easter. And I think the only reason they do that is just in case. Just in case. Like, I, I'm not, I don't really believe this stuff, but what could it hurt, right? This is, this is what Paul is engaging with here. They built this statue. They don't really know what it is. It's the unknown God. And they build it just in case. And Paul sees that. And he goes, that's my entry point. That, that's, this is my pathway. I found this statue, and I'm going to use this as my jumping off place to share the gospel with these people. And he's, what he's doing is he's pointing to an area in their lives where they're uncertain about something. Not only are they uncertain about it, but they're also admitting that they're uncertain about it. And Paul says, that's what I'm going to capitalize on right there. So Paul makes this bold statement. Look at this. Let's take some guts. He says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Whoa. Now, that took some guts. He says, look, guys, come on, be honest. You don't know, do you? If you knew, you wouldn't have this statue over here. Otherwise, we wouldn't have created this statue. And so here's the lesson, I think. Before we present the Christian worldview, we must learn to gently expose the inconsistencies and problems with their worldview. And there are problems. Expose inconsistencies. You must do an internal critique of what they say they believe. Now, this takes some boldness. This takes some courage. But this is important. Uh, Dr. Francis Schaeffer, one of the most brilliant Christian apologists of, our, uh, of the last century, really, talks about this. And, and what he said was this. He says this. Too many unbelievers have not had the courage or the consistency to follow their thoughts all the way home. And so what you need to do is take them where their thoughts lead them. you got to help them follow their worldview to the logical end, which means showing them why and how their worldview falls apart and how it actually blows itself up. And you gotta, he, he called it blowing the roof off. you got to blow the roof off in that place that they're taking shelter before they want to take shelter in your church. You have to show them that the place that they're taking shelter in doesn't actually provide them shelter. Before you present Jesus, you have to topple their idol. And this is what Paul does. You might say, you know, my friend, I get that you really long for a greater purpose in your life, and that's really great. But don't you believe that we're all just here by chance and we all came from nothing and eventually we're gonna be nothing? Where do you get that desire for purpose that you have? That seems like a very meaningless type of worldview. How does that make sense to you? You have to expose the inconsistency in their worldview. Or you might say, listen, I get that you have so much compassion and love, and you long for justice. That's great. Me too. Can I ask you a question? Where do you get your idea of justice? Where do you get ethics from? Because if you believe what you say you believe, you don't really get an absolute standard of right and wrong and ethics in your worldview. So where does that come from? And just leave them with the question. That's exposing the inconsistencies. And so this is what Paul does. He points out this unknown God, and then he steps forward and begins to proclaim sound doctrine and the true God. Take a look at verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, that is Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now pause there for a second. Did you catch that? God set out the boundaries of where and when 
you would live in the history of humankind. What that means, friends, is you're working in the place that you're working in because God placed you there. You're at the school you're at because God placed you at that school. The person who has the locker next to you at the gym has their locker there because God put you there. The person in your life and your family that you talk to uh, regularly on those holidays, they're there in your life because God placed them there in your life. There is no accidents that God set you in on there, set you there on purpose for a purpose, and he wants you to make a difference for him. This is the next principle of multiplication. When we're sharing our faith, we can't just talk about idolatry and the flaws of their worldview. We need to also talk about the one true God. We need to expose sound doctrine. We need to take the time to talk about not just what's wrong with what they're doing, but mostly to take the time to talk about the beauty and the loveliness and the glory of the triune God of Scripture. That's the God who's revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. That's who they need to meet. That's who they need to have an encounter with. Aren't you so glad that you had an encounter with the one true God? That's the God that they need to be introduced to. And so this is what Paul is doing. Paul goes on to say in verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. And here's where he quotes their musicians. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What Paul is doing skillfully is he's using their authority sources as ammunition against them. The first one is a poet named Epimenides. The second one is a third century poet named Aratus. And Paul said, would you please listen to your own heroes? They are telling you something and they are right They are talking about the one true God. He's not a statue that you make up and guess about. He's not an unknown God. No, no, no. He can be known for certain. God is not an abstract concept. God is not a force. He's a personal God, Paul says. In fact, he created you. He knows you. He knows you by name. He wants you to seek him. He wants you to find him. He's actually your heavenly father. He's the one who says, I created you in my image. You're my son. You're my daughter. This is the kind of God who can have a relationship with you. This is the kind of God who wants to know you personally and intimately. What about that God? Now, this is something worth thinking about. And when you begin to explain the one true God, this is when the other person begins to stop and think and wonder. But let me also warn you, When you begin talking about the one true God, this is also the same place where people begin to pull back from you. This is also the same place where people begin to get hesitant. The great C.S. Lewis said it so well. Take a look at this quote. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own head, better still. A formless life force surging through everyone, a vast power we can all tap, best of all. But a living God pulling at the other end of the cord, approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, the covenant Lord, the husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment, he says, when people who've been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back, supposing you really found him, or worse still, suppose he found you. 
This is the God Paul is proclaiming. And after Paul explains the character of this one true God, he then brings his message to a close and attempts to seal the deal. Take a look at the way he does it in verse 29. Therefore, Paul says, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, that is Jesus Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now notice Paul's closing argument. Does Paul shy away from God's judgment? No, he does not. Does Paul shy away from the word repentance? No, he does not. And what does Paul point to as the quintessential proof of the one true God, the pinnacle of God's revelation to us? He Notice, he does not point to God's design in the universe, though that is breathtaking. He does not point to the Bible, though the Bible is a great evidence for God. He does not point to the prophets. He does not even point to the miracles of the apostles and even his own miracles to prove this God. Those are all wonderful. But here he points to the strongest Proof that God has ever given to humankind. And it's this, the person of Jesus Christ. And specifically, his resurrection from the dead. Why? Because that one event confirmed that Jesus really was who he said he was. The very son of God. And you need to know, I, everyone, everyone needs to wrestle with that one issue. When you share your faith, make sure you get to this one crucial issue. Make sure you allow them to wrestle with the question above all questions in their life. Who is Jesus? That's the question. Everybody has to wrestle with that question. Even Jesus asked that question, didn't he? Who do people say that I am? Your answer to that question is the most important thing you need to know in your entire life. Everyone has to wrestle with this. Who is Jesus? Ask that question. Let that question haunt them after the conversation is over with you. Make Jesus Christ the central issue in your conversation. Get to Jesus Christ. Do not finish the conversation before you get to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is Jesus? What do I do with Jesus? This is the most important question anyone needs to answer. Now, Paul has argued for his case. He has debated with them. He has put them on the spot. And what would their response be? Well, it actually tells us. Take a look with me at verse 32. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, say that three times fast, Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So notice the reactions to this missionary encounter. Notice there's three different reactions that are listed here. So there's at least three. First, there's the reaction of rejection. Some people sneered. Some people mocked. The Bible says that that could happen to us. The Bible says that sometimes the gospel will seem like foolishness to those who are perishing. And so don't be surprised if that's the response you get. Don't be discouraged if that's the response you get either. That's just a reality. But think about this. 
For those philosophers who sneered and mocked Paul on that day, looking back from our perspective in history, within the next couple hundred years, can I remind you, friends, that it wasn't Epicureanism that swept over the West. It wasn't Stoicism that took over the known world. It was Christianity that took over the entire Roman Empire. So now people go to Greece and they don't ask, where's the statue of Athena or where do the Epicureans meet or tell me where the Stoics used to debate. No, 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 no. They go to Athens, Greece and they ask their tour guide, can you please take me to the hill where the Apostle Paul preached at the Areopagus? That's what they ask their tour guides. Some might sneer, some might mock. Reaction number two, did you see it? Others want to hear more. Others want to hear him again. Others say, I'd like to have some future communications with you about this. That's a great open door. That's an open door to a a lot of hope there. I bet that's true with many of you. With many of you, when you first heard about Jesus, you may not have necessarily embraced that news the very first encounter you had. Perhaps it took multiple occasions, multiple conversations for you to finally be willing to cross the line of faith. And so that's a very good thing. So don't be discouraged if that's the reaction. In your workbook on page 176, you'll see a spiritual formation exercise where we use something called the Ingalls Scale. It's a way of gauging where a person is on their spiritual curiosity, Uh, negative 10 all the way up to positive 10. And that's a way for you to think about where are they in terms of their openness to hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus. And so you can kind of prepare for your talk in that way. Not everybody's ready to cross that line right away. That's okay, God is still at work. Keep being faithful. And that leads us to another important point in terms of our strategy here. We need to be prepared for a mixed response. Not every helicopter seed makes a new maple tree. Sometimes the seeds just land on unfertile ground. But we don't measure the success of our ministry based on how pleased the crowd is or a round of applause. Our first concern needs to be for the clarity of the message, our faithfulness to the Lord. The wrong question is whether or not people receive that message warmly. It's nice if that happens. But remember, the Lord Jesus Christ was rejected. Remember, the Apostle Paul was rejected at times, as we see here. So the right question is, was I faithful to the gospel message? And do I see the signs of conviction uh, on those people that are listening? And sometimes that might look like a forceful, negative reaction. And the Bible says that will happen. They will stumble over the stumbling stone, the offense of the cross. That's a a totally normal reaction at times. But other people, friends, other people, listen, other people in God's perfect timing will have their hearts open to that message when you are sharing it and you, yes, you, will have the great privilege of having them Open their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time. Take a look at that text one more time, if you will. It says, look look at this third response. It's so wonderful, isn't it? It's the response of faith. Some believed. Praise the Lord. Some placed their faith in God right there and then. Some placed their faith in Christ for a handful, right? Dionysius, who just so happens to be on the council and was in charge of Mars Hill. That's pretty cool. And this dear sister Damaris, this was her day. And a few others, it says, this was their time. This was their moment where they crossed the line of faith. This was when they decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. There are people, when you share with them, that will be their moment of being introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Church, <coughs> there is nothing that compares to the joy of seeing another person embrace the gospel for the very first time. I will never forget. I will never forget the times in my life where I got to have a front row seat to see someone else embrace the Lord Jesus Christ for the very first time. I will never forget those times. There is such joy and such hope and such beauty in that moment. Now, I know salvation is God's work and Ultimately, we depend upon him. We, you know, we plant, another person waters, God makes it grow. I get all that. I know that. God is at work there. But ours is the joy of seeing them come back to the shepherd. Nothing will thrill your heart as much as sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and having someone accept that good news. And here's what I know about you. Someone took the time to share that news with you. Someone took the time uh, to believe God enough to share the gospel with you. And God wants you to have that privilege now, to be the instrument to sharing that news with someone else. So let me ask you again, who's that one person? Who's that one person in your life, in your family, in your circle, in your friendships, at work, at school? Who's that one person in your life that you know needs to know about Jesus? And what are those steps that you can take to prayerfully move forward towards them through what you say or through what you do to make an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where are you throwing your helicopter seeds out this week? Who's that person that you can invest in? Friends, as we look at these seven principles, think about how you can put them into place in your own life. Have you made social contact with unbelievers? Have you done your homework? Are you finding common ground with those who don't share your worldview? Are you skilled enough to expose the inconsistencies in those who don't believe like you do? Do you talk about the one true God? Can you make Jesus the central issue? And can you prepare your heart for whatever responses are there? Share the gospel. It's this world's only hope. I beg you. I beg you. On behalf of the lost, I beg you on behalf of our community, I beg you on behalf of this church, and I beg you on behalf of your own reward when you stand before the Lord, share the gospel. It's this world's only hope. I'd like to invite the worship team to come as we pray together. Father, we bow our heads and we close our eyes in this moment. For a second, we're just going to ask for forgiveness for thinking about this like it's a pain and not a privilege. And we're gonna ask you to forgive us for thinking about this like it's a burden and not a blessing. And then we're gonna ask us that you give us your eyes, that we might look out to the fields, and that we might believe that the gospel has what it takes to go up against any secular worldview. And would you give us opportunities, Lord? Would you allow us to see you at work? Would you give us open doors? And then when we see them open, would you also in that moment give us a new courage and a new boldness to walk right through that door with the message of the gospel, the greatest news in all the world? Would you give us the privilege of introducing others to you? We ask this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen.